Hello and welcome to Transaction Healthcare. I'm Zach Eisenberg, Vice President at Merit Healthcare Advisors. Merit Healthcare Advisors is an investment bank with a unique focus on healthcare providers and their businesses. Transaction Healthcare is a podcast focused on addressing questions and concerns at the intersection of healthcare, transactions, and business. Well, welcome guys to Transaction Healthcare. Today we have Dr. Jay Przanski from the Merit team, um, as usual, and uh, Matt Hicks, who is a managing partner at Accelerator uh, Healthcare Partners, a very reputable private equity firm within the healthcare space that really focuses on healthcare as well as a few other industries. Um, with that, Matt, I, I'd like to kick off just by asking you to introduce yourself, introduce Accelerator. And uh, again, today's topic is about the musculoskeletal space within healthcare. So if you could also then maybe spend a little bit of time talking about your firm's view on the musculoskeletal space and what you've done in the space, that would be great. Sure, sure. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I look forward to our discussion. A um, little bit about Exelier. Exelier, you know, 16 years, I'm a managing partner and original founder of the business. Uh, Exelier, uh, you know, is focused a preponderance of their investments, almost over 80% in the healthcare space broadly. Uh, we're located in Denver, Colorado. We're um, 99% of the time first capital in, so we're partnering with the entrepreneurs and physician leaders. Um, and organizations of these healthcare businesses. We're on our fourth fund, which is $875 million. Uh, we generally invest in control businesses, uh, but we also do a small number of minorities uh, when the situation is right. Um, and when we think about healthcare, healthcare is broad for us. It's physician practices, it's other reimbursed services, non-physician, pharma services, life sciences, and biosciences. Great, great. Th- thanks for that, Matt. And just to dive right into what's been happening from a macro perspective um, within the mas- musculoskeletal space within healthcare, maybe talk a little bit about the opportunities that you're seeing in that space. And I think Jay was talking about this before we started recording. Um, you know, really what is driving consolidation, driving interest from your firm and firms like yours to invest and partner with physicians, particularly in this space? Yeah. You know, really from starting at the very top, um, I mean, first and foremost, I think the attraction from an investment perspective is, is there's such great macro demographic trends. Um, I mean, I, I hate to always go back to the, the aging of the U S population, but you kind of have to in this space. Um, you know, everybody's joints, whether it's feet, knees, hips, backs, sometimes necks, you know, the older they get and the longer they live, the more it becomes challenging. So that really has driven good, steady patient volume um, into, you know, these types of businesses. Um, furthermore, you know, there's a lot of different areas to play. You can play in those straight up orthopedics, interventional pain medicine, podiatry, um, you know, and you can play from the medical device side. So there's a lot of opportunities to invest that are experiencing these trends. I think if you were to th- uh, talk specifically more about orthopedics and the attraction 
within that industry is is a, a couple fold. Um, you know, number one, you've got good patient demand. Number two, a lot of the surgical opportunities have been coming out of the hospital and actually these, uh, you know, whether it's hip knee replacements, you know, shoulders and stuff like that, people are really preferring and getting better outcomes in ambulatory surgical centers. So you'll see a lot of these uh, practices have the opportunity to be investors within the surgical practice, which also creates another technical stream of revenue. Furthermore, there's a number of ancillaries beyond that, whether it's interventional pain medicine, most of these businesses need anesthesiologists. They also have PT. Um, you know, if you're on the pain side, you also have mental pain, so you'll have psychiatry. So there's a lot of areas to play and drive revenue beyond just the traditional, you know, joint procedure that may be occurring, you know, with the business from there. I would say, um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, how has the world changed from maybe a year, 18 months ago to now? I will say great businesses are still getting great valuations. Um, has that value, have those valuations come down? Yeah, maybe, maybe a couple turns, but if those businesses are growing nicely and they can really show and prove that they're growing, um, you know, I, you know, I still think that they can, you know, get into those teens valuations and, and which are really attractive for the, you know, the current owners of those businesses. Some things that have happened are, um, there's a lot of rigor around pro formas, uh, particularly if it's a de novo play to making sure that, you know, these businesses truly are turning new sites, new clinics into profitable locations. And it's not just a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay on that. A lot of quote EBITDA adjustments, um, and your investment banker can help you work through those are being scrutinized a lot more and not accepted, not only by the private equity firms, but a lot of it's driven by the lending community also. So I think those valuations that were highly adjusted, maybe, you know, 12 months forward or even further forward, of, you know, accepting of, of pro forma adjustments, that's just getting more scrutinized. But that being said, great businesses are, are still getting great valuations. If you've got a mediocre business, um, it, the transaction may not close. So you're better off maybe holding and, and cleaning up in certain areas before you go to market. Oh, th thanks. Those, those are great, great points. And, and I really appreciate that. You know, you touched on a lot of areas around, you know, speaking about orthopedics of the, all the musculoskeletal specialties, orthopedics seems to be kind of the, you know, the golden child. It seems to be where the greatest savings come from moving cases into, you know, office environments or outpatient environments and all the amount of equipment, implants, and ancillary services they use. But you know, as a doctor, you know, we see kind of the headwinds of Medicare adjustments, you know, the payer pushback, you know, trying to keep costs in line, things going to, you know, population management, bigger groups coming in and taking over communities. And so it's funny that I sometimes am a little more worried about the space than some of the companies that are coming in 
And so I'd just be interested to get your thoughts on how, you know, private equity looks at practices versus the services that support the practices, which I think, you know, can be a lot more robust. Yeah, clearly um, you can't totally disregard what's happening from the payer side because they're ultimately the, the people that are that are paying the bills. And, and that's something that's always been, you know, paramount on Axelier on, you know, what's the trends within those areas and, and, you know, how do you manage those? And historically, I would say most all of them have had pressure downward. Um, not so much in the ASC side, but, you know, I think, you know, the, the critical thing for these businesses that we look for are businesses that are really trying to step out beyond their brethren and show that they're best in class. And, and, you know, maybe it's, you know, hips and knees and, and, you know, they have the lowest infection rates, you know, and you, and you can research that and their, and their outcomes um, aren't just verbally outstanding. They've really tracked their outcomes. Um, and that's critical from our side to see a business that first and foremost practices great clinical patient journeys or clinical medicine, and they at least have the makings. Most of them don't have it fully vetted out with clinical trials and white paper research and stuff like that, but they've at least been capturing the data to prove that they've got extraordinary healthcare in, uh, outcomes, because then that allows you to go to payers, whether it's um, you know you know commercial or or Medicare Advantage or or go direct to very large self-employeds and and ask them to drive you know their their um, employees through you know your facilities to really stand out and capture that volume. So first and foremost, so you have that revenue. And then and then secondly, we are constantly helping our organizations find ways to be more efficient. How can we use technology versus just more people power? You know, how can we be more efficient within our surgery centers, moving the procedures through on an efficient basis? Um, and the same thing in the clinic. So you can't not see that you're going to have continued reimbursement pressure and not try to continue to make your business more efficient. Right. I actually think, um, if I can, Jay, I think that's a really good uh, segue into another topic area that we wanted to chat about with you, Matt, when Jay and I were talking about this the other day, is uh, I know Excelior has experience in the pain management space, which isn't obviously orthopedics, but it's inexorably linked to orthopedics in this broader musculoskeletal space, which is, of course, uh, you know, what we, we want to talk about today. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So, you know, of course, as uh, Jay mentioned, there continued pressure from all the pairs. Reimbursement has been going down and pairs are trying to find a way to continue to um, to reduce payments um, which uh, you know overall for the system is probably probably a good thing but it does create some challenges for practices and for provider businesses when you invest in a practice first of all what are you looking for as a baseline and then secondly and maybe you can talk about your 
pain management business as an example, how did you grow that business once you actually invested? What are the things that you, um, new service lines that you developed or, uh, or initiatives that you put in place that help this business grow aside from being able to negotiate for higher rates? There are other things that you can do to grow practice. And I know our, our audience in general will be very interested in this as most of them are are uh, physician entrepreneurs. Yep. So a couple baselines. Um, first and foremost, uh, a culture and a history of of organic growth is critical. It's it's really hard. I don't care if it's healthcare or not. A business that doesn't have a culture of growth to get that business growing takes a lot, a lot of effort. So you want to be with one that's already had a trend and that is, you know, that it's proven that it's growing outside of their existing geography, even if it's a city um, versus states and, and regions. So that's critical. You know, for us on a size perspective, you know, seven, eight million of EBITDA and also starting to see the semblance. It doesn't have to be totally built out, but a semblance of investment in the business aspects of healthcare, whether that be a CEO or a COO, good revenue cycle, HR, some IT, and it's really that MSO concept. Um, there's still a lot of physician practices out there where the doctors work full-time during the day and they try to manage the business full-time in their second day job when they're at night, and they just haven't yet made that investment in the, the business services side. But when we see the semblance of that, nice growth, you know, kind of a reasonable size where we can get an investment in the business, uh, we're pretty excited about it, you know, assuming that there's not just drastic, drastic pressure on reimbursement, which usually wouldn't be the case if the business is growing nicely. You know, you brought up an interesting point about having the infrastructure in place. I mean, personally, I see a lot of big practices, you know, decent size practices in the space. And I see two things happening. One is they don't have that infrastructure. And I know you have a certain EBITDA of uh, hurdle to you know want to invest, so they don't have that infrastructure, or they do and they have kind of an inadequate infrastructure. Meaning, you know, the CFO, they go out, you know, and especially practices go out and they hire a CFO, and you know, some high-paid people who may not really be the right ones to grow the business. How hands-on is your firm personally? And, uh, you know, do you see that as an opportunity to get to the next stage or would you rather pass on them and look for the company that's really well run? One of our best skill sets is helping these organizations institutionalize their business, which really includes really finishing out and preparing that, that MSO or the business side to really accept accelerated growth. So for us, we don't pass on that. And in many cases, yeah, there are people that aren't the right people that are going to be for this business when it's two and three times the size of the business. And we look at that as an opportunity, and that's where our project expert and our strategic alliance programs come in and can be very active working with the team. I do pause and say we are not operators and we don't pretend to be operators. We're strategic investors. We're very active. We bring a lot of resources, very active from the board side. 
and help drive initiatives within businesses. But our but the you know the build out really occurs with the help of our project expert network, which we've have folks that can come in and work with the management team on just about any specific subject matter within a healthcare business, from RCM to IT to HR to to payer agreements to you know finance and accounting to EHR and and you know financial and and uh, KPI systems. Matt, could we could we dig into the specific business you uh, Accelerator invested in in the space? I think it would be helpful for uh, for the audience to kind of hear a case study of this. But, you know, where was the business when you invested, and then what were some of the main initiatives that you put in place? Uh, you know, let's say in the first twelve or eighteen months after investment, and um, what sort of strategic, as you put it, strategic um, add-ons did you make to the business? Because I think one of Jay's points, um, which a lot of physicians ask us about as a, as an advisor is, um, you know, it seems like there are so many investors out there that have uh, plenty of capital and they're investing in the healthcare space. How do you differentiate between those investors? And this is, you know, them asking us. And um, it really comes down to the, you know, strategic advice and operational advice that you can give at the board level. So I think um, I think that would be really helpful to to hear your experience. Uh, yeah, we um, so we invested you know a while back in a business called Advanced Pain Management, um, interventional pain medicine. Um, and if most people understand pain management, there has been, I guess, at times dark clouds or gray clouds around the business where they were, you know, pill mills or, or, you know, pushing tox screens or whatever it was. But this one was purely interventional, really procedure based. And the business was, had five ASCs and probably about 20 clinics, 13 physicians, 40 or 50 um, mid-levels or nurse practitioners, and they actually had built the semblance of a, a good kind of business operation, had a great business CEO, Vishal Lal, who really knew how to grow businesses um, and open up new clinics. When we partnered with him, we we said, okay, how do we take what you're doing so well in the, Miss, uh, the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, southeastern Wisconsin, and really grow that into additional states as well as other areas of Wisconsin and do it in more of an accelerated pace. So we really did a growth strategy session and developed, um, I think it was, it was really kind of three different models to grow. The first one was your traditional organic, open up a clinic, open up an ASC in a new market, um, use your, your marketing engine. They had an eight or nine person marketing engine that we helped build out, um, to drive referrals into the business, just like, you know, most other healthcare clinic based businesses do. Then we started uh, doing joint ventures with hospitals. Um, as you've seen as of late hospitals want to be in the ASCs because a lot of, um, procedures are going that direction. And actually we were able to do it and retain control, uh, a position with these hospitals because we always wanted to be able to say that our pricing was 30 to 40 percent lower than a traditional hospital inpatient procedure and and we did that with three or four hospitals all over the 
um, kind of Wisconsin, Illinois area. And then we had started later on in the investment doing joint ventures with large multi-physician practice groups. And we'd started to move into Minnesota that way. So that allowed us ultimately to grow um, from our five and 20 to basically 11 um, ambulatory surgical centers. And um, we probably had about 50 clinics. We had 26 doctors. We had doubled our mid-levels and our team and the business probably had 300, 320 employees. And now we are in three different states. Um, clearly there was a lot behind the scenes we had to do. We had to continue to invest in their financial systems, really beef up their revenue cycle to withstand the volume that was kind of coming through the additional sites. Um, they were very, very forward on their IT, uh, before we got there, uh, which was great. And we just continued to enhance that either through their EHR platform or information technology systems throughout the business. Um, we drove a lot of, of KPI accountability through the organization. And, um, and then lastly, and I almost forgot this, sorry for being a little bit long-winded. We really were, uh, worked with the team to develop a seven-year outcome study of their patients um, of, of multiple-year cohorts so that we could go back to the payers and show them how using interventional pain medicine um, type treatments and procedures in many cases was much better for a patient than going directly to back surgery because even today, back surgery, 50% of them fail. Um, and a back surgery all in can cost 150 grand. Our outcome studies showed over a, a five to six year time frame that it would be about $6,000 to really kind of help a patient um, you know, uh, move through their, particularly their back pain, which is where a large preponderance of pain patients come into practices. Really appreciate that, that background, Matt. And uh, there were a couple of interesting things I'd like to dig into, uh, from what, from what you said. The first is, you know, a lot of practices, I, I think, uh, have one strategy, Maybe they have two, but one thing that you said at the outset um, is that immediately after joining the practice, you came up with three separate strategies, and then you it actually sounded like you added on some more as time went on. Um, and to me, that that just talks about flexibility and the ability to approach each development situation in an opportunistic, flexible manner. One of them, for example, that I think a lot of practices that we speak with um, and a lot of practices out there would find surprising is the hospital partnership model. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about the situations where you found that useful and, uh, you know, particularly for this practice, but um, just in general, your, your perspective as, a, as a, an investor on uh, those types of partnerships? Um, so hospital joint ventures, either formal or informal, I think for an outside clinic-based business, it always behooves you um, to attempt to play well and partner with the hospitals within those areas. Um, while hospitals have been under tremendous pressure, at the end of the day, they're absolutely needed for a community. And 
they have a fair amount of political power within the markets that they reside. Uh, and to that point versus, you know, fighting upstream and being viewed as a direct competitor of a hospital um, system, uh, if you can really form a partnership with the leadership within those, there's opportunities to co coexist and there's opportunities to actually bring a lot of profitability to hospitals that they wouldn't normally get. And you have to show that to really develop those partnerships. And we've just always tried to take a partnership approach um, across the payers, the facilities, the physicians, and obviously our patients uh, versus, you know, being an antagonist to the hospital systems. Right, right. A rising tide lifts all ships, that type of mentality uh, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, for the other item that I wanted to chat about, I want to bring Jay in here. Uh, it really has to do with, I think, where the market is going, at least uh, in, in, uh, in my view, uh, from a capitation and value-based uh, perspective. And it sounded like you were starting to have maybe some of those conversations with the payers regarding this pain practice. But Jay, do you want to just frame this a little bit for the audience and then um, jump into uh, some questions on this for Matt? I mean, the the common wisdom, well, it's hard to call wisdom, but the common trend or the talking points at you know, conferences, healthcare conferences, and uh, private equity conferences that deal in healthcare is a term population management, which really gets to really uh, changing the uh, payer model from FIFA service to more advanced types of payment. You know, one end of the spectrum is, you know, bundled services or pay for performance. And the other end, they think the only way the United States healthcare system is going to rein in costs is to have medical groups taking risk. And the way that happens is it's basically a capitated risk. And for that, it seems, you know, you could have great data analytics, say, for one of your pain practices, and you go to a payer and say, gee, you're paying us 110% of Medicare. We have this great data analytics. We deserve more money. But to be able to go to that same payer and say, hey, listen, we have these great outcomes. And we believe we can deliver cost-effective care to you. We're willing to partner with you and take risk. And we have all this scale. So if you give us an exclusive contract, well, you give us an exclusive contract, We'll promise you that we'll take care of all your, you know, pain medicine patients in this region. So is that really where you're going? How do you see that? I, I really kind of gave you a mouthful, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think, um, and some specialties are moving quicker than others, but definitely I think in the orthopedic space, um, there's opportunities to practice value-based care. Um, and you definitely can't just, you know, walk into a payer and say, let's talk rate. In fact, if you want to do that, unless it's a very unique practice that has leverage in the market, um, and there's very few of those of independent practices, um, you're just going to get quashed or they'll just turn the door on you and say, keep the rate that you have, or in fact, we'll ask for lower. So you've got to lead with outcomes and you've got to do the work for the payers of, 
of how your practice will save money um, for that payer um, specifically and, and prove that over, you know, many cohorts of patients over multiple years. And I think the practices that really do that effort can position themselves. And maybe it's, maybe it's a, a bundling formula or, or, and remember, payers are, are not just the traditional ones, United, Aetna, Humana, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, your payers, um, and there are more and more businesses, even smaller businesses, going to self-insureds. And if you can go work um, something within your region with, you know, let's say it's a GE who's got thousands and thousands of employees and say, hey, we'll take all your hips and knees or your interventional pain, and here's a standard rate wherever they go. They'll be 100% in-network, um, you know, maybe no deductible or something like that. And you can, you know, cut a value-based contract like that. It becomes very, very attractive. And when those practices know that they have that steady volume coming in, through those types of payers, then they can really work on the efficiencies of their clinical patient journey and their business to make sure that even if it is at a maybe a lower overall price, um, that they're still generating the margins within their business that they need to, you know, really kind of keep their organization healthy. Okay. So really with your, your own personal growth plans for your, your pain platform, is it to, you know, really scale more or increase same store sales essentially for a crude word for doctors? They don't see themselves as stores, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, well it's, it's always nice to increase same store sales, but just like any facility, whether it's a manufacturing facility or a clinic. And I know physicians hate to hear that sometimes, um, but you have a capacity limiter. So uh, from that perspective, and our goal ultimately is, is to scale in concentric circles and get broader and broader and broader um, to deliver the high quality healthcare services that we're doing. So opening up more clinics and, and, um, and if it's ambulatory surgical centers or, or, you know, the joint ventures with hospitals, we also, where you can kind of make that capacity more within a single quote clinic storefront is, is what are the ancillary services that are akin to this specialty, whether it be interventional pain medicine or orthopedics that can be driven through that clinic front or that ambulatory surgical center. And that's where maybe if you're at capacity of seeing those, that number of patients, but there's ancillary services, whether it be, you know, um, upfront prescriptions or, you know, if there's any bracing or devices needed, um, you know, if there are, you know, certain types of injections that can be done in the clinic that historically were done in some other setting, that's where you can continue to get that nice same store uh, sales growth, even if you feel like you're running a capacity within the clinic. Okay. One thing I, I'd love you to address, because I brought it up and it sounded a little crude, because physicians, of course, are supposed to be above treating patients and, and making money. You do it for the love, clearly. And of course I did. I didn't care whether I made a living. It was for the love of the patient. But private equity and Wall Street get a bad rap for just putting dollars ahead of patient care. So can you please, as a 
quote, Wall Street guy, even though you're not living on Wall Street. Tell us your thoughts on that intersection between making something profitable and delivering good care. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, and this is kind of the, well, it's not kind of, it's a hard and fast philosophy with an Exelier. You have to separate the business side and the clinical side. And the clinical side really needs to be driving the discussion. So we always have physician leaders at the, on our board at the top of the house driving strategy. And when there are business decisions being made, those need to align with high quality clinical medicine or high quality patient journeys. So I think that's, as long as you really kind of create, uh, create a separation between church and state, one being the clinical side and the business side, and decisions aren't being just made solely because of trying to make that extra dollar or squeeze out that you know extra bit of profit or margin, um, there is plenty of fairway within healthcare that you don't have to just take a cost perspective or, or a pure business perspective. You, if you deliver high quality clinical care and you can explain that to the marketplace, whether it's patients referring physicians or payers, you're going to be very successful in healthcare, and it's got to start with top-notch clinical care. At least God, uh, I would within love to a- hear that trumpeted throughout the country because people don't get it. I see it, you know. I see the other side too, but I see more often that you know sponsors like yourself feel good about aligning with good doctors and want to give give them the room to practice well. So, and the unfortunate thing for our industry is, is as we all know. You always hear about the bad stuff, and people talk ten times more about the bad stuff than the than the great practice down the road that just keeps delivering great medicine day in day out. Right. Here's a t- little tougher question for you: Is as a pain platform, we talk about integration and uh, payer contracts and delivering more of a service to, you know, a sector in the healthcare market. Do you see yourself sticking strictly with what you know in pain, or do you think eventually you should be part of a larger musculoskeletal platform with the other musculoskeletal specialties, ortho and and podiatry? So we we absolutely love um, actually both uh, orthopedics broadly and the podiatry space. And you know, number one, it's driven by the the, the early discussion around the broad macro demographics. Um, ortho has so many different lines of revenue to include even clinical trials that you can drive through an ortho practice on specific devices that it's just a really, really attractive space. Unfortunately, we just haven't hit on the one that works for us and them. And then also podiatry, um, which has been a bit of a quiet area, albeit there's a few private equity groups that have made investments, is still a highly, highly fragmented space. Um, and, and it's a, it's a specialty that while be it, it's dealing, you know, with some of the most intricate joints or muscular skeletal areas of the body. Um, but it's remained kind of on its own versus flowing right into orthopedics. So I think there's a great area there and also, but, uh, podiatry ventures out of just pure muscular, uh, muscular skeletal, they have to deal with a lot of diabetic-related issues um, also, which opens up a whole different world 
of growth um, for that business line. So two areas that we've looked actively at, we just haven't been able to hit on a on an investment to date. I may have something for you, but I won't deviate. We'll stick on this topic. But uh, you're right about that. But I, I guess eventually I really do see pain medicine as part of you know general orthopedic platform and just my own view is being able to go again to a payer kind of in the way that Hopgo did and say, we have a big footprint here. We'll do all your care. Give us a bundled payment or let's capitate and we'll deliver it all at, at high quality. Yeah. And, and uh, I actually think that's a good um, segue to another topic area I wanted to ask about, Matt, is, you know, in terms of motivations for private equity because i think it's another area where i i know having sat on that side of the table um can be quite misunderstood from the seller's perspective or from the i'd say general marketplace perspective of just how you know normal folks are just thinking about private equity what, what is the motivation for an investor like you when you enter an investment? Obviously, you're seeing a lot of opportunity in the musculoskeletal space right now. We've been talking about many of the reasons why. But is, uh, is, is it as, as simple as, um, hey, I, I'm going to you know invest and I absolutely, after I grow the business, I'm absolutely going to sell it after four years and it's just very uh you know uh decided upon from day one maybe just talk through the mindset of a of an investor because I, I think it's something that's just not really well understood from the outside looking in yeah so i mean for us at exelier it, it's really twofold and and i mean just getting down to brass tacks we have to make investments and we have to grow and build equity value of those investments and re- return top quality returns to our our pension funds and our insurance and our high net worth investors. So that that's a that's a standard. And anybody um, partnering with a private equity firm should just purely understand that. That's that's clearly a motivation because if we don't do that, we're not going to stay in business and we won't be able to raise additional capital. But really, when you think about the long game for us, we need to be viewed as a very strong strategic partner because we're industry focused we can't just do a one and done and and squeeze out every nickel and every little bit of roi on a deal because that reputation starts to jump out in front of you and then you won't have other physician leaders because they'll do their research they'll make phone calls they'll call guys like you what's excellent like to work with and so it's all about building best in class businesses and leaving them much better off than when we in, uh, uh, originally invested in them. And if we can do that consistently at a very high level, we will have continued opportunities to invest in, whether it be orthopedics or, or other specialties that we've entered, because we will be getting good references day in, day out by physician leaders. And that's what Exelir is built on. We're built upon what we've done historically, how we've worked well with management teams and physician leaders and left the businesses better off than when we initially invested in them. And that allows our company to go on well beyond my time. And hopefully Exelir will be around 25, 30 years from now. 
Right, right. And yeah, just speaking about, you know, that moment of exit, you know, who decides when that exit happens and maybe just talk through a little bit, um, you know, what that, that kind of discussion usually looks like with your physician partners. Is it collaborative? Are you really, you know, sticking to a very precise timeline on every investment? Maybe just talk through some of those dynamics. So, um, not a per, uh, precise timeline. It's about how much value we've built over a certain period of time. You know, we're always looking at what we think the equity value is for us, as well as our physician rollover investors. It's extremely co collaborative. If a private equity firm thinks that they can kind of sweep out and sell a, a physician-based or a physician-led organization when that those physician leaders don't want to do that they're they're going to have a rude awakening because at some point in time that future investor whether it's another private equity firm or a hospital system or a payer like united they're going to talk to the physicians um, they don't really care about the private equity investor they're going to talk with the people that are delivering care and if those people are unhappy your deal's going to go away so it's absolutely has to be collaborative. It's not, you know, who has the majority control legally or minority or whatever. It's a collaborative discussion. Hey, I think we've built a lot of value here. We think the market's good. We've still got a lot of growth runway for the future investor. What do you think, docs? What do you think, board? Um, let's talk through this and figure out how to align the business with the next best partner or investment partner after Exler goes away. Makes sense. Makes sense. And um, I think that's actually a great place for us to wrap. So, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on today. I think uh, it was a great, great conversation. You know, a lot to a lot to work with. I'd love to, Matt, meet you in person over a glass of wine and really talk through some of these issues, physician alignment, everything. I think you're, you're a bright guy. I think you're really on the right track. And I'd hope to bring you some uh, deals as well. And uh work through them with you. Yeah, I think absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. Uh, really appreciate uh, um, the time here and, and you know, always open to chat either uh, over a podcast. I think this may be my first podcast, at least I can remember, or uh, um, sometimes it's more fun over a glass of wine. And that wraps up another episode of Transaction Healthcare. Hit the subscribe button to get notified when we release new conversations. And if you are someone interested in learning more about these topics, visit us at meritadvisory.com or send us an email at contactus at meritadvisory.com.